Church exists to shine as light in our homes, in our community, and in our world. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. Are you aware of some rags to riches kind of stories? All of us really are aware of some rags to riches kind of stories. Somebody that goes from nothing to everything. I just recently heard the story of uh, this homeless man in Cleveland who had this incredible radio voice, and and somebody heard about it, and he was then offered this uh, job with uh, Cleveland Cavaliers, and the NFL Films came and asked him if he wanted to do some voice work for them and all these companies, and it's a rags-to-riches kind of story, and we love those kinds of stories. Uh, We're all aware of a number of them, but let me ask this. Are you also aware of some riches-to-rags kind of stories? You know, and naturally, the thing that goes through our mind first is stories of people who had everything and then they had nothing. But I want to take that phrase, riches to rags, and put it someplace a little closer to home. I want to place it within your closet. Is there anything in your closet that has gone from riches to rags? Let me tell you what I mean. You know, you got that pair of jeans that when you buy them, they're your good jeans. Uh, you might be wearing your good jeans this morning. You know, they're, they're your good piece of clothing. But at some point, they get tattered over time, and they become the work jeans. And then after they're the work jeans for a while, they, they eventually they get a little paint on them. They become only the painting jeans. Then maybe they get cut off. Uh, eventually, maybe they end up as a rag in the closet that is used to clean up something the dog left on the carpet, right? I mean, this is just what happens on the progression of our clothing. There are things in our lives that go from riches to rags because of of how they're weathered. I mean, they maybe even go so far as to skip the step of becoming a rag and just be given away to goodwill or to wherever. Uh, This is something that we're all familiar with, right? The, 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 The riches to rags kind of story. Uh, Man, I was thinking about that this week, and I was thinking about how important it is for us to think about this as we compare that kind of a feeling to our spiritual lives. Yeah, I think if all of us are honest, there's a sense in which we think that we have an opportunity to go from riches to rags in our spiritual life in the eyes of God. Let Let me put it this way. We all know as believers in Christ that we begin as sinners falling short of the glory of God, we begin as rags. But because of what Christ has done and we embrace that gift by faith, we're given all the riches of the heavenly places from rags to riches. But we many times think that because of our sinful actions and attitudes, we then go back to being a rag in the eyes of God, something that he'll either give away or repurpose for a lesser use. Now, if we're honest, many of us think that in the eyes of God, we are a rags to riches to rags kind of story. But is that true? You know, how we answer that question and how we think about that is, is of extreme importance. It's, it's of extreme importance for a number of areas in our life, but it's especially important as we think of the area of hope in our lives. Hope for this life and purpose in this life, and hope for the the life to come in eternity with God. How we understand this rags-to-riches-to-rags kind of model and how God really views us is extremely important to our understanding of hope. 
And we're in this series right now, a three-week series, where we're, we're calling it Hope Restored, where we're looking at the life of the Apostle Peter, and where we're seeing how we can have hope even when we make mistakes in our life. So we saw last week how the Apostle Peter had this one colossally bad day leading up to the crucifixion of Christ. That time, Jesus asked him to pray, and he falls asleep, demonstrating his weakness. Uh, then a group of people show up to arrest Christ, and, Jesus, and Peter pulls out a sword, and he cuts off a servant's ear when Jesus was ready to give himself up to be arrested. He made a wrong choice. Then around a fire, Peter denies Christ three times. He sinned. And then the circumstances of the world were turned on their ear for him when the one he had pinned his hopes to, his Savior, was dead and buried in a tomb. In a period of 12 to 14 hours, Peter had lost hope, and he was weeping bitterly. But last week we saw that Peter was able to resume his hope by the fact that Jesus rose from the dead and that we have a living hope that's in Him. This week, we're going to continue our series and continue our story by looking to see if, if Christ is, is, is raised from the dead, if we can have hope, if He hasn't thrown us away, does He still want to use us even if we have failed in different areas? And we're going to look at that today from the book of John, chapter 21, verses 1 to 19. So if you've got a Bible, open up to John 21. We're going to look at the first 19 verses as we continue this series. And in John 21, we get Jesus making his third appearance to his disciples after his resurrection. This is not the first time that they've seen him, it's the third time. But in this third appearance of Jesus to his disciples, I think it answers the question for us, how does God view us who are fallen, weak people? Are we riches to rags kind of stories, or is it something different? I'm going to read the passage, and then we'll back up and take a look at it more in depth. John 21, beginning in verse 1, says this. It says, After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. And Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we'll go with you. And they went out and they got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet his disciples did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? And they answered him, no. And he said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. So they cast it. And now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, It is the Lord. And when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and he threw himself into the sea. And the other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far off from the land, but about a hundred yards off. And when they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. And Jesus said to them, come 
have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? Because they knew that it was the Lord. And Jesus came and he took the bread and he gave it to them and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, feed my lambs. And he said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, tend my sheep. And he said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you're old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Now in that, those 19 verses, we have one of the most famous sections of the Gospels. We have a, a favorite passage. You, you've probably read this uh, several times. You probably have heard sermons on it several times. It's a, it's a famous passage. And because it's a passage that we're familiar with, uh, it's very common for um, pastors and for teachers and even for us as we study individually to try to find some deeper meaning within the passage. Uh, and there's a lot of places that people go to try to find some deeper meaning. And, and I want to just kind of cover some of that before we dive in and see some application for us from the passage. Uh, you know, one of the places where people try to go to find a little deeper meaning is in the number of fish that are caught. It's interesting that it mentions that there were 153 fish that were caught. They, they counted them. They had a number. Now, some have, have seen that number of fish and have used it as uh, you know, some idea that, that possibly the, the number means something. 153 is representative of something else. That's one of the places where people try to find some, some deeper meaning. Another place where people try to find some deeper meaning within this passage is in the word choices in Peter's dialogue with Jesus. See, Jesus comes to Peter, and he begins to have that conversation, and some different words for love are used. Uh, Jesus comes and says, Peter, do you love me? And the word that he uses for love is the Greek word agapao. He says, do you agape love me? And Peter responds and says, yes, Lord, I phileo love you, different Greek word, both translated love in our English Bible. And, and some look at that and say, well, see the difference in use of words. There must be some, some deeper meaning, another layer of meaning associated with that. A third area where people try to find meaning is, is in the, the language that is used in Jesus' replies to Peter. He says at different times, tend my sheep, and at other times, feed my lambs, and he's using these different words. And, and all of those details of the story are often used as, as, as clues for us to try to find a deeper meaning to this passage. Um, and actually, I came to the passage this week uh, trying to find that meaning myself. And I've spent the week, you know, on top of other times that I've read this passage and studied it in the past, uh, and I can honestly tell you after I read it that I'm looking for it and I just can't find it. You know, it's interesting, the, the, the issue of the fish. It says that 153 fish were caught. Uh, some of the earliest associations that were given to that number 
uh, were by the writer Jerome in the early church. Uh, Jerome said that 153 is a reference to all of the fish in the sea. It says that in the time that Peter and, and James and John and Jesus were walking around, that at that time there was believed to have been 153 different varieties of fish in the sea, and that the catch of 153 fish was a reminder to them that they were to take the gospel to 153 kind, all of the different kinds of people that were in the world. And, you know, that's a beautiful uh, picture, and, and it would really preach well, and I was hopeful to use it today until I saw that it was actually quoted to a man named um, Ossie, Jerome quoted a man named Ossie, O-S-S-I, who actually only had, like, in the 70s numbers of fish, or, or close to 100. Uh, the numbers don't work. It would have preached well, but it's not anchored in reality. Um, you know, as, after looking at it more this week, I, I think I have found really what the true meaning of 153 fish was, and that's this. There were a lot of fish. Um, that's kind of the deep meaning. There were a lot of fish, more than what was normal. Um, uh, second thing, that these, these different uses of words. As some would see the different uses of love to say that Jesus was saying, do you love me in an unconditional, great kind of way? And Peter responded, no, Jesus, I, I love you, but more in a friend kind of way. You know, second tier love. But that doesn't make sense in the context. Jesus says, do you love me? He says, yeah, I love you. And, and the, I think really what you have there is that you have, uh, as well as with the, the tend and feed comments, is John just using a variety of words. And that's backed up by the fact that, that John, in a number of places in his writings in the gospel and in the epistles, uses synonyms more than any other author in the New Testament. He has two words for everything. And he used two words just, to, just for, for interest in the story. Now, it's totally possible that I'm wrong on those things. And there are people much smarter than me, and there are people that understand original language much better than me. And, and I, you know, if, you, if you've heard this before someplace else, I'm not taking a shot at anybody in particular. Uh, I'm, I'm just saying that as I read it, I don't see that as the true meaning of this passage or indicators of the true meaning of the passage. Um, and so I wanted to, to go over that first because we're going to look at what I think is the plain meaning of the passage for us today. Um, and, uh, you know, if, if I'm wrong, I'm, I'm humbly wrong on this. Um, but I think that there's a, a simple, straightforward meaning of the passage that has great impact for each of us, especially when we think of the issue of hope. Uh, and we're going to see it kind of in three parts in this passage. And the first thing that we're going to see, and I think this is really important for us to see, is that Jesus keeps us. Jesus keeps us. You know, sometimes we have an article of clothing that gets dirty, it gets, it gets ruined, it gets paint on it, and we give it away. But, but the reality is that no matter what we do in our lives, if we are Christ, He keeps us no matter what. And we see that happen in this passage in that when Jesus is raised from the dead, He immediately wants to go be with His people to remind them that He is still with them. And we see it here because you might wonder, what are they doing in Galilee? Why are the disciples up in Galilee? Why are there seven of them up there on a fishing boat? And the reality is the reason why they're there is because that's where the angel told them to go. When, when they run to the tomb and they see that it's empty, an angel meets them there. We see this in Mark chapter 16, verse 7, and also in the book of Matthew. The angel tells them, hey, go to Galilee and Jesus will meet you there. And so after interacting with Christ some and right around that, that scene, they, they head to Galilee. 
And it's in Galilee where Jesus meets up with him. And after the disciples get to Galilee, you know, Peter is not one to just sit and twiddle his thumbs. He gets up there, doesn't see Jesus immediately, and says, hey, guess what? I'm going fishing. This is back on his home turf. He says, I'm going to go out to the Sea of Tiberias. You might know it better from its, its more common name in Scripture, the Sea of Galilee. So I'm going to go back out on the Sea of Galilee, and I'm going to do some fishing. We'll, we'll see if Jesus is here in the morning. And uh, just an indication of Peter's leadership, the other six guys go, hey, we'll go with you. And they all end up on the water. And, but but they're, they're up in Galilee, and it's there that Jesus appears to them on the shore. Now, the interesting thing is, why did Jesus tell them to go to Galilee? Why did he not just say, hey, stay here in Jerusalem and I'll meet you there? Why does he say, go on to Galilee and I'll meet you up there? I think the reason why Jesus did that was because he wanted to take them back to the place where they started together. He wanted to take them back to a place that was special to them. He wanted to meet them there to remind them that he was keeping them, that he was still with them. Uh, this is not unlike Fonzie telling Richie and Potsy, I'll meet you at Arnold's Drive-In. Uh, it's not unlike Jerry telling George and Elaine and Kramer, I'll meet you at Monk's Diner. Uh, it's, it's not unlike, you know, Slater telling Screech, I'll see you at Bayside High. He, he, what, what was happening was Jesus was saying, we're going to go to the very familiar place with us because it's there that I want to remind you that I'm still with you, that I still love you and I'm not throwing you out. See, the geography was significant. The geography was important. And you know what? As, as we gather here today, there are probably a number of things that want to compete for your feelings of hope and security in the Lord. There are probably things as you gather here today where you think, because I've done this, because I've said that, because I've experienced this, that somehow I've gone from riches to rags. And I don't know if, if Christ is going to throw me out or if he's just going to repurpose me into a rag in his kingdom, but whatever it is, I don't feel like he's as with me this morning as he was before. You know, maybe it's because you're, you're just are going through or have gone through it sometime in the past, the, 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 the struggle and the pain of divorce. You just feel like, you know, I'm going through this and my life is just cratering and crumbling and, and I don't know what I'm going to do because of this. I, certainly, I'm not in the center of God's purposes in, in my life anymore. I'm, he's he's going to be through with me. Maybe that's where you're at. Maybe, maybe it's over an issue like, like abortion. Maybe you, you've, you've had an abortion in the last month, in the last year, in the last six months, uh, whatever it is, and, and you're, you're feeling like, oh, because of that, I, I can never be used by God in a significant way. Maybe it's because of failure, past, present, uh, whatever. You feel like, because I've done this, because I've done that, there's no way I'm going to be riches in the kingdom of God anymore. Whatever it is, there are things this morning that you brought with you that make you want to feel as though you're a rag in the kingdom of God, or you're something that he wants to simply throw out. If that's you, if you came in like that today, here's what I want you to do. I think this is a very appropriate application to this passage. I want you to think back to the time in your life that was a spiritual high point. I want you to think of that place. You know, where was it? It could be the night that you trusted Christ. It could be that night at church camp when you put your stick on the fire. You can still smell that fire if you think about it close enough. It could be um, the, the, the youth group living room 
when you were growing up where you, you first your faith was first forming and you had this zeal and, and excitement about that. It could be the mission trip that you went on and, and how you were certain that God was with you at that time. Think about the place, the, the, the geographical place where you felt like you were on the mountaintop with God. And if you this morning feel like, or in the future, if you ever feel like that God is no longer interested in you because, interested in you because of what you've done, here's what I want you to do. I want you to imagine him pulling you over and say, hey, meet me there. Meet me back at that church camp. Meet me back on that mission field. In your mind, just go to that spot and remember, because that's what Christ does with his disciples, and God never changes. He takes them back to the place where their experience was because he wants to remind them, you remember how I loved you here when I called you on the Sea of Galilee at the very beginning, all the good times we had around this lake. Remember all of that and know that it's still true today. See, Jesus says he's going to keep them, and Jesus says to us that he's going to keep us as well. It's one of the the things I think we need to see from this passage. But the second thing I think we need to see from this passage is that our value is found in him. Our value is found in him. Now, we'll see in just a moment where we see that from this passage of Scripture, but I wanted to to give us a a picture that maybe helps us understand the concept a little more, and that picture is of Indiana Jones. Um, And you see the picture of Indy behind me. Uh, Now, Indiana Jones is one of my favorite characters in any movie. Right, I mean, he's just—he's just the the definition of cool, right? And, and Indiana Jones has this trademark hat. You know, in every movie, there's the point where that hat blows off, comes off, gets knocked off, and it's behind a wall that's going to close and never be opened again. And he reaches through and grabs it and pulls it back, right? And he puts it back on his head. And and that hat is beat up, it's dirty, it's got bullet holes in it, it's got, you know, smoke stains on it, it's got everything about it. But you know, when that hat goes on Indy's head, it's cool. It's just awesome. And and the reason why is that that hat's value is attached to Indiana Jones. Now, if you just found that hat in a thrift store, you'd keep walking, but you find that hat on top of Indiana Jones and it's just cool. And the reality is that Jesus, when he shows back up with his disciples, he wants to remind them that, hey, guess what, guys? I know that you're stained. I know that that you've done things that you wish that you hadn't done. I know that you're imperfect. I know that you're weak and fall asleep when I ask you to pray. I know all that stuff is true about you, but guess what? Your value is found in me. And when I take you in my hand and place you in my body, then you're of infinite value to me. You're a riches and not a rag because you're associated with me. That's what Jesus is doing with the disciples. And, and he reminds them of this by reminding them that he is still exactly who he was. He reminds his disciples that their value is in him and that he is still the Savior and the Lord that they were following around during the three years of his public ministry. Uh, Jesus does this in a number of ways. The disciples are out fishing. They fish all night and they catch no fish, very reminiscent of another night that they had fished all night and caught no fish back in Luke chapter 5. And Jesus calls out from the shore and they don't, they don't know that it's him. Now, there's a couple of, of reasons for that. One of the reasons why they wouldn't have known it was him is they were, it was dark and they were a distance from the shore. But another possible reason is that the resurrected Christ had some different physical qualities. 
Uh, and there were a number of instances in the resurrected life of Christ where people didn't recognize him at first. Uh, so Jesus is on the shore. They're out on the, on, the, on the water. And he calls out, hey, have you guys caught anything? They say no. He says, take your nets and throw them on the other side. And they do, and they catch 153 fish. From no catch all night to 153 in an instant, and suddenly the light bulb goes on over the Apostle John's head. Bing, I've seen this before. They were once on the water, Peter, James, and John, when Jesus had them do the very same thing after a fishless night, and they caught so many fish that they had to all gather together. And he goes, I've seen this before. This, that person on the shore that called out to us must be Jesus. And though John first realizes it, it's Peter who first acts. This is a great insight into their personalities, right? John is the one that figures it out. He's the smart one. He's the insightful one. Peter is impulsive action. Jesus, he's gone. He's in the water. He's swimming over to Jesus. Peter gets out, and he sees him there. So the first reminder that Jesus was still who he was was the fact that this was reminiscent of Luke 5 and the the catching of the fish. Once they get on shore, Jesus reminds them again that he is who he always has been when he has some breakfast with them. What does he serve them for breakfast? Fish and loaves. Jesus have any experience serving fish and loaves? Yeah, he served about 4,000. He served about 5,000 fish and loaves, and he used the disciples as a part of that. I think Jesus chose this menu very specifically because he wanted to say, hey, guess what? Still me. And the disciples got it. It says that no one dared ask, hey, is that really Jesus? It was quite clear to them. The fish, the loaves, the catch, it was still Jesus. And it was the same Jesus who even knew the warts and the blemishes that they all had. And that was reminded to Peter by the fact that they're Jesus has prepared a charcoal fire. It's very specific. He says they're gathered around a charcoal fire. The same kind of fire that John 18, 18 tells us Peter was warming himself by when he denied Christ three times. I think that even that fire was a reminder to Peter. Hey, guess what? I'm still with you. You still got tremendous value because you're connected to me. And I even know the worst things you've ever done but it's going to be okay because I'm with you. Now, as you sit here this morning, and if you're dealing with those feelings of second class, relegated, am I going to be given away or relegated to a rag in the kingdom of God? Not only do we need to go to that place in our minds at times we remember this time when Christ you know, we were were close with him, but we need to remember that he has not changed. And the love that he had for us on that day is the same love he has for us today. That's what I believe is one of the significant meanings of this passage, because our value is found in him. We're like Indiana Jones, hat on his head. We are Christ's body, clothed in him. Our value is found in him. And because our value is found in Him, we are riches and not rags in the kingdom of God. And we know that we're riches and not rags because when Jesus begins to interact with Peter, He restores him to the top level of service 
You know, at Peter's pinnacle, Jesus said, Peter, I'm building my church, and you're going to be right there in the middle of it, being used by me for all of my purposes. Peter loses his hope, but when Jesus restores him in John 21, Jesus restores him to that top-level, riches-level purpose of loving his people. And he does it publicly. I think it's fascinating. And I think the reason why Jesus does this publicly, the rest of the disciples are all around when Jesus is asking Peter, do you love me? And Peter is saying, yes, I love you. The reason why Jesus does that and the reason why he does it three times is that Peter denied Jesus three times publicly. And so Jesus gives Peter three times publicly again to not just to, 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 to declare his love publicly. I think this is a big reason why we don't see the early church full of whispers about should Peter really be still a part of the group after what he did. Isn't it interesting? You know, don't you think the way that humans are and the way people are that there would have been some backbiting in the early church? Well, he's the one that denied Jesus three times. He's the one that couldn't stay awake. He's the one. You know, before the, the crucifixion and resurrection, the disciples did that kind of stuff a lot. I'm the greatest in the kingdom of God. No, I am. I want to sit at the right hand. No, I do. After that, we don't see that. And I think part of the reason is Jesus went to such lengths to publicly restore Peter, to let everybody know that Peter was fully back in the riches of God, that he still had this plan for him. And that plan was for him to love others. I mean, Jesus literally said, do you love me? And if you really love me, Peter, then you'll also love and tend and care for my people, is what Jesus says to him. This is reminiscent of Jesus' answer to the statement, what is the greatest commandment? The greatest commandment, Jesus says, is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. What Jesus was saying was, if you're going to love God, then that love will certainly spill over into your love and care of God's people. And Jesus is making that connection crystal clear for Peter at this point. He's at his top-level, riches-level purpose, and that purpose is that he is to love others. By application, we might say for us today, if we realize that, that God is with us, that, that Christ cares for us, and that he's restoring us, we'd also realize that he is calling us still to his top level of service, and that is to love others. You might say it this way, if Christ was standing here right now having a conversation with you, he would say, do you love me? He would say, yes, Jesus, I love you. And he would say, okay, then love your wife or love your husband. We'd say, do you love me? And we'd say, yes, Jesus, I love you. And he'd say, love your children. Do you love me? Yes, I love you. Then love your brothers and sisters in Christ. Do you love me? Yes, I love you. Then love your enemies. See, the, the fact of the matter is, when we realize that we are a rags-to-riches story, the appropriate application of that is a love for God that spills over into a love for others. And that is the top level of service in God's kingdom. I want to close this with just one thought, and I, I, just, I think this is so in interesting. The passage ends with Jesus giving Peter a proclamation that he's going to be led away to his death. He says it in a rather poetic way. He says, when you get older, someone will take your hands and 
stretch them out and lead you where you don't want to go. And that really is a picture of someone will take your hands and place them out on a cross and you will be crucified. What was it that motivated Peter to deny Christ three times? I don't want to go to the cross. That's what Peter, I don't want to go there too. And so he denied Christ three times. But just a few days later, Peter is willing to follow Christ knowing where it's going to take him knowing that his circumstances are not going to get any easier. And the reason why he can do that is because he's not looking to his circumstances to find his hope. He realizes that his hope in death and in life is found in Christ. And he's going to follow him everywhere regardless of where that is. And and here's, here's where I want to end for us today. What that means for us is if we're looking for our circumstances to just get easier, if we're looking for our life to just get easier in this life, I can't give you a ton of promise here because life is difficult and following Christ will even lead to persecution and opposition at times. But here's what you can say with total confidence. This book offers tons of promise that we can have hope. Our life may not be any easier, but it can be infinitely more hopeful when we realize that our hope is found in Him. Our value is found in Him. He makes us riches and not rags. Let me me pray for us. Father, I thank You for this time, and I thank You for Your Word. I thank You that we've had the opportunity to look at it today. Father, I pray that uh, just knowing the way all of us are, myself included, there are days and times when we feel like you must have abandoned us uh, or we feel like you must uh, want nothing to do with us because of our sin or our failure or our sickness or whatever it is, that you must have left the scene. Father, I pray that all of us would return in our minds and remember the spots where you first communicated your love to us in deep ways. And Father, we would go there because it is a reminder to us that since you never change, that you love us that much even today and that you long to use us today. Because you never change, our hope is on a solid rock. We thank you. We pray that you would guide us to trust you. In Jesus' name. Amen.